0: Let's close our eyes and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that grandparenting was your idea and that you gave us the joy of not only loving our grandchildren, but also the responsibility of sharing our faith with them. We ask that you pour out your spirit on our speakers tonight as we learn about Christian versus cultural worldview and also what you're doing among grandparents through our small groups here at St. Philip's. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was saying, we began this this ministry, this generation's ministry, which is what we call the Grandparents' Ministry at St. Philip's a little over a year ago as a result of some of us going to Grand Camp out at Camp St. Christopher, which was begun by Peter Rothermel from the Diocese of South Carolina. He's in charge of Christian education. And I went with the idea that I knew there'd be some spiritual influence and I knew I would have a lot of fun with my grandchildren, but I was unprepared for the impact it would have on my life as showing me the real importance and depth of being a grandparent. You know, I had read that scripture, Deuteronomy 4, 9, a number of times, but I don't think I, I saw the entirety of it until I went to grand camp. It said, be careful that you don't forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. And I missed that last part. Somehow I thought I would teach my children and pass the baton of faith to them and then my children would pass it to their children. But it's really our responsibility as grandparents to pass it to our grandchildren as well and to make sure that... Um, that they experience the gift of Christian faith. Um, Amy Smith um, is is our head of our Christian education here at St. Phillips, and we're really under her umbrella. So I learned that as I was discovering how to to begin this ministry here. She's not here tonight, but she spearheads the entire ministry. And as you know, she does an amazing job. Um, We're going to have a full evening, so I'm going to give you a little rundown of of how it's going to go, because we want to get you out of here by 8 o'clock if we can. Um, We have a gifted writer and communicator, Mike Dowling, who's going to be sharing the Christian versus cultural worldview um, to us tonight. Also Brian McGreevy, who is the minister over the Grandparents' Ministry. He's he's just an amazing help and, and leader for us. Um, Bob Coons is going to share a little bit about the small group that he led in the fall, and also we'll have a testimony from from Bruce as well, who was part of that group. And then I'll wrap it up by telling you a little bit about the future of of, um, this next year coming up. We're going to have some more small groups like the one that Bob led, Bob and Noel led, and and also another one. Also, with the very end, we'll have prayer teams in the back one on each side so if you'd like to have prayer after this meeting feel free to to do that as well okay so buckle your seat belts we're going to have a a packed evening and I'm going to tell you a little bit about our speaker first our guest speaker is Mike Dowling um, my husband and Howard and I had lunch with him and his wife Sarah on Sunday after church and they are a real blessing to this community we are fortunate to have them with us Michael is an award-winning author, ghostwriter, and author of over, an editor of more than two dozen books. Before that, he served for 12 years on staff at Trinity Press, Presbyterian in Charlottesville, Virginia. He has an MBA from Columbia Business School in New York, and coming out of alternative religious views, Mike is passionate about helping families gain a greater spiritual awareness of today's confusing times so they can more effectively promote and live by biblical oh biblical worldview. Um, he will also introduce us to his gifted wife Sarah who is his artist and, and um, illustrator for his his books. Following that Brian will come up and then Bob will come up and um, we'll close this out. So let me introduce you to Michael.
1: Thank you, Lynn. It is a real pleasure. Thank you for inviting us tonight. I'm very thankful for that. And I'm very thankful to God for making this possible. It's really a miracle because uh, not a long time ago, I mean, it seems like a long, but Sarah and I were very involved in alternative religions, like Lynn said. I was involved in uh, cults and New Age, what might be called New Age thinking and religions and beliefs. And Sarah was involved in the occult. So she would go to seances and I would go to cult meetings. And God graciously pulled us out of both of those. And then uh, He showed us that He had us uh, for each other and we got married and we've wanted to do this for a long time and we've done different things. But now it seems to be coming together in this book of fables and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that book, because it is a tool that grandparents can use and parents to disciple younger children, and it's a very deep book, Uh, and on one level it looks like a children's book, and you can see it on the table over here, and they're for sale later, but uh, so it looks like a children's book, and Sarah is the illustrator, but it really goes much deeper than that. So it can be used in adult, adult teaching as well. And it has a Burrowing Deeper appendix as downloadable for free on the website. And we are giving some away tonight. Peter Rothamel graciously uh, made these available. There are 20 of them over here. So the first 20 people that get a book can get one of these printed. Or you can get it for free downloaded. Have any of you noticed that the culture has changed in the last few years? It's a little out of whack, isn't it? The things that I used to be involved in were on the fringe. And that was about in the 70s. They were on the fringe. Today, they're mainstream. And they're even in the churches. And they're so widespread that people are just, they're they're commonplace. Let me just read some of them and see if this is familiar to you. And I'm going fast. But all, all spiritual paths are more or less equally valid. It is always wrong to be intolerant. Truth is found within oneself, so it's different for everyone. Happiness is the goal of life. Gender is a decision. What you experience is more important than what you believe. Promoting self-esteem of children is of paramount importance. Sin is an unhealthy outdated concept. Jesus was a highly evolved spiritual being who came to teach us how to attain the same level of enlightenment. Does that sound familiar, some of that? That was fringe back then. Today it's mainstream. There was a reporter for the Denver Post who got fired just the other day, I read that for saying that there are two sexes and he's fired. It's just crazy out there. And what we're trying to do with this book is trying to counter some of that because, as Brian will say, they can't both be true. The Christian message and the worldview cannot both be true. And we have something in the book where it says wisdom of the world and wisdom of the word. And you look at them and you you know they can't both be true. But we've had people write favorable reviews of the book that aren't Christians and say, oh, isn't it nice that they put two different views there? As if, you know, as if they both could be true and we are so open-minded that we would put both. So let me just introduce you to the fables now. My wife, I hope, is going to show them, technical wizard here. And we're going to show you just two fables out of the book. Because I want to show you how the book will work as a tool for discipleship. And Sarah, I am ready for the first fable, and it is, uh, for, it is "Frogs' Rainy Day Story" is the name of the book, and "Frogs' Rainy Day Story" is the first fable.
2: Right, uh, taking off blank.
1: Okay, great. Florence, is right here. okay. Um, uh-uh. Uh -uh. And these are narrated for you, so it makes it a little bit like a movie.
3: Frog's Rainy Day Story It was a rainy day, too rainy for even a frog to go out and play. I'll stay inside and write a story, thought Frog. He took a pen and a piece of paper and started to write. Once upon a time, suddenly Frog saw something strange, very strange. The letters were marching toward the edge of the page. Stop, shouted Frog. I'm using you to write a story. Oh, rolled out front and looked up at Frog. That's just the problem. We're sick and tired of being used. To you, we're merely tools to be bossed around. Stay here and make this word. Go there and make that word.
2: Yeah, said T, leaning forward in a gruff italic stance. I'm tired of being told what to do. I want to do my own thing. And I want to feel important for a change, said M.
3: But you are important, answered Frog. Without you, I can't write words. We'll have no stories to make us laugh and cry.
2: That proves our point, said M. The only thing you care about is the stories. You never say, what a wonderful M.
3: Yeah, said you. The stories get all the glory, and we letters get the low self-esteem. And another thing, said A. Why am I lowercase when O is uppercase? We should all be equal. And we should all be rich, added P.
2: Rich, rich, rich! Fame and fortune!
4: Fame and fortune!
3: yelled the letters, marching again toward the edge of the page. Wait, said Frog. You were created to make words. If you don't make words and stories, what are you going to do? The letters stopped their marching. They looked at each other in silence. Not one of them had an answer to Frog's question. Finally, Frog spoke. I've got an idea. If you stay, I'll write a story about you. I'll tell how you wanted to be important, but you realized you are important when you're doing what you were created to do. The letters huddled together. After a while, O spoke. Okay, we'll agree to stay, but you'd better not forget to write that story. Frog didn't forget. He wrote the story, and the letters true to their word are staying on this page so you can read it. We're made for a much larger story, which we miss when we seek our own glory. At the top,
1: and Wisdom of the Word at the bottom, and you can read those, you can see what the world tells us, and what the Word says. And they're just two different views. Um, now, what the letters are doing here, we would never do a thing like that, would we? We wouldn't want to try to make ourselves important or anything, would we? I mean, that's that's something kids do or letters do. No, of course, it isn't. And in the Bible, right before you know, not long before Jesus went to the cross, what were his disciples discussing on the road? You know, who would be the greatest, right? And Jesus, of course. Wash their feet. Um, Let me read this quote. This is probably I didn't uh, This is from somebody you might have heard of, C.S. Lewis. They wanted, as they say, to call their souls their own. But that means to live a lie, for our souls are not, in fact, our own. They wanted some corner of the universe of which they could say to God, this is our business, not yours but there is no such corner. They wanted to be nouns, but they were and and eternally must be mere adjectives. Isn't that right? That the heart of the new age movement that I was in and the heart of so much that's going on is we want to be God. That's the heart of it. Let's do the next one. Yes, the moral, did you hear the moral? We're made for a much larger story, which we miss when we seek our own...
2: Duck's Wrong Turn One hot day, Duck set out to find a pond where he could take a swim. After waddling along for a while, he arrived at a fork in the road where a beaver had just finished painting a sign. Is there a pond near
3: here? Duck asked Beaver. The sun is very, very hot, and I must have a swim.
2: Ayyawk. There's a lovely pond of cool water a little way up the road to the right, answered Beaver. See, I just finished painting the sign. But
3: that way goes up a steep hill, and in these feathers, such a climb would be terribly uncomfortable, complained Duck. But I prefer the path to the left. It
2: goes downhill. There's only one way to the pond, said Beaver. The arrow points the way. I'll fix that,
3: quacked Duck.
2: He grabbed Beaver's brush and made some changes to the sign. That didn't move the pond, said Beaver.
3: Well, thanks for your help, Duck quacked over his shoulder as he waddled merrily down the path to the left.
2: Watch out for the fox around the bend, Beaver yelled after him. But Beavers have soft voices, and Duck was already quite far down the road. If there's only one way, it's foolish to say another way is okay.
1: That is a common mantra of sort of New Age thinking and that worldview that says there are many valid religions. And then, of course, the gospel says something very different, as it was said tonight in the service. So what does duck here want more than a swim? Right. He wants an easy path. He also wants the choice, right? Choice is a big thing in our culture too, isn't it? We want to be God again. Have you ever noticed how people are have so many different views about religion? You know, you're, you can, you're entitled to yours maybe, and I'll have mine. But there's just a wide variety. Everybody seems to make up their own religion. Uh, that, But God comes to us and... We, sub- we submit, and often when I was in New Age, I didn't want to do that because it means dying to yourself, but that's true freedom. So these fables and the workbook that goes with it are a, just a way of a bridge that you can talk to children about, and it's a very helpful thing, and, and uh, it allows you to uh, really pass truth on to the next generation. We have a real responsibility for doing that as Brian will say. Thank you.
5: So I wanted to uh, take just a moment to put this in context a little bit for some of the people that are in the C.S. Lewis class. We've been talking a lot in that class during the screw Tape Letters about making Sure that you don't fall prey to the devil's schemes. And one of the devil's schemes is to make you think that your worldview doesn't matter, that whatever you want to believe is just fine, that it doesn't really have any consequences, and aren't we all just nice to each other and everything will be fine? But the problem with that is it doesn't really work very well. And part of the reason that this is so very important today is that if you spend any time with young people, they have a very different worldview probably than most of you. And we assume that people have the same basic assumptions about life that we do, and that would be wrong. If I had a little bit more technology and time, I would show you a Diet Coke commercial uh, that came out in 2019. If you know how to go on YouTube, when you go home, pull up the Diet Coke commercial that says, just do you. And basically it says, you can be whatever you want to be. You can do whatever you want to do. You are your own God, essentially. So it doesn't quite go, it doesn't put that last part in words, but that's what it means. So for us who want to try to figure out what to do about this, the power of story is one of the greatest tools that we have for being able to deal with what I think is really one of the fundamental crises in our culture. So I want to talk just a little bit about what does worldview mean uh, That may be a word you're not familiar with. It basically means philosophy of life. Uh, It's a philosophy of life, the assumptions upon which you base your life, the story that you believe to be true. And if you study philosophy, there's a lot about what a worldview is that's basically a commitment or a fundamental orientation of the heart that's expressed in a series of presuppositions about the basic constitution of reality. So we're gonna unpack that uh, a little bit tonight. So part of the reason that this is so very important is that for most of us, um, we grew up without even knowing it in a Christian worldview where the fundamental assumptions of our teachers, our ministers, the media, everybody else were all fundamental assumptions that were consonant with Christian truth. But that has changed. And C.S. Lewis was one of the first people to show us that the trends that were happening in the 1930s were gonna land us right where we are now. And some of you will remember in the 1980s, at the end of the 80s, there was a very provocative book by Alan Bloom, uh, a, a scholar who was at Yale and then the University of Chicago called The Closing of the American Mind. And 1987, that seems like that was just yesterday, but I'm sorry to tell you that it wasn't just yesterday. Um, That was 13 years ago. Um, And listen how what he said has come true in spades. According to the postmodern worldview, the danger is not error, but intolerance. Relativism is necessary to openness, and this is the virtue the only virtue which all primary education for more than 50 years has dedicated itself to teaching. Openness and the relativism that makes it the only plausible stance in the face of various claims to truth and the various ways of life and kinds of human beings is the great insight of our times. The true believer, that means us, is the real danger. The study of history and culture teaches that all the world was mad in the past. Men always thought they were right, and that led to wars, persecution, slavery, xenophobia, racism, and chauvinism. The point is not to correct the mistakes and really be right. Rather, it is not to think that you are right at all. This worldview that's out there today dismisses the entire history of the human race and says there's nothing to be learned from that, and that we have to find our own way. And your children or grandchildren are being taught that in school. Freud, not someone friendly to the Christian worldview, predicted that if we were able to throw off the shackles of religion, that this is what would happen. Fundamentally, we only find what we need and only see what we want to see. We have no other possibility. Since the criterion for truth correspondence with the external world is absent, it is entirely a matter of indifference what opinions we adopt. All of them are equally true and equally false, and no one has the right to accuse anyone else of error. We have now moved from the conviction that everyone has a right to his or her own opinion to the notion that every opinion is equally right. This notion is very confusing, to children. So I want to just do a quick run-through that compares the secular worldview, what is out there that is being taught in schools, that's the worldview of the media, um, both broadcast media for the most part, and print media. So the first, some of this is a little abstract, but it's important. The first thing, what is real? Now, you think that's a stupid question. But actually, it's not. Because for if you have a Christian worldview, what you believe is that God created the heavens and the earth, and that His kingdom is real and eternal, that the people that are in this room are real, that the tables and chairs are real, um, that right and wrong are real things, um, that there are some things that you should never do. But in the secular worldview, that is not true. There is no ultimate reality. Reality is whatever you choose it to be, and everything is subjective. There is no God. Another way of looking at this is you are your own creator. Second, this is probably the most disturbing one, and it's the reason, until you understand this difference, you don't understand why some of the discourse gets so violent and hateful in our culture today. For Christians, a human being is someone made in the image of God by a loving creator who has designed you and created you for a life of meaning and purpose that finds its ultimate fulfillment in serving him. In the secular worldview, a human being is a random accumulation of atoms with no more inherent value than a plant or an animal or a rock. You are your own creator, and you can choose who and what you are with no limitations. And living into your deepest desires and speaking your truth is the only purpose of your life. So the idea is that we all evolved from the cosmic goo, and it's just an accident that you're not an asparagus, basically. (laughs) So there is no more value to a human life than there is to a vegetable, and this it's funny, but at the same time, it's also profoundly frightening because that is the reason that we see a crisis about the value of human life. What happens at death? The Christian view is that you enter into eternal life with God in heaven if you are a Christian or you spend eternity separated from God. And the secular worldview, death is not really a big deal. Your atoms are rearranged and you cease to exist Death is inconsequential because your life is inconsequential. So how do we know anything at all? God is the source of all knowledge, and this has been the, the traditional viewpoint for most of Western civilization. And he's created an orderly universe that includes absolutes such as truth goodness, and beauty, which are defined in him and by his revelation in scripture and his incarnate word, Jesus Christ. The secular worldview says that what we perceive as knowledge comes from physical processes in our brains and from our own experience. There is no such thing as truth or goodness or beauty. You can't say something is good and something is bad. That is all in the eye of the beholder, and it is entirely subjective. Which leads us, how do we know what's right and wrong? For Christians, God has revealed the standard of what is right and wrong in his written word, and has written his law in our hearts, and all ethics of right and wrong derive from his word. But in the secular worldview, there is no such thing as right and wrong. Uh, It is completely up to each individual to determine based on their feelings in the moment. They can go back and forth. What's right for them one day might be wrong for them another day, and that's all fine. The only thing that is wrong is to tell someone that their view is wrong. That is the only thing that is wrong. And just a, a quick little aside, when my wife was teaching at a prestigious preschool that will remain unnamed, she was called to have a conference with the preschool director because there were some unhappy parents of a three-year-old in her class. And so she went in to have a meeting, and the parents complained that Jane had told their child no. And they said, we do not tell our child no. You are damaging her self-esteem and inhibiting her self-actualization. So we do not tell her no. You are not going to do that to our daughter. Now, thankfully, the head of the preschool uh, backed Jane up and said, we're sorry, we're going to continue to tell your child no. Uh, but that, that is the view that a lot of people have. What's the meaning of human history? In the Christian worldview, human history finds its framework in the revealing of God's plan of salvation. And history is moving toward a culmination that will come at Christ's return. In the secular worldview, there is no meaning to human history. All previous generations were mad and deeply flawed. And we are so much smarter than they ever were, and we make better coffee. (laughs) So another way of looking at this is, what does it mean to be human? And just, I'm going to run through this really quickly. The secular understanding to be human and to live a fulfilled life is to be utterly free, free from all outside forces except maybe the rule of law but maybe not even that, uh, that seek to shape you or demand certain beliefs or behaviors. It's freedom from external constraints, freedom from any obligation or expectation placed by others, including religion, social norms, family expectations, freedom to define who you are and pursue that identity without constraint or criticism. Two parts of this self-determination and self-expression Self-determination is the absolute freedom to determine who you are or what you are, regardless of biology or any other inherent factor. This is like the Caucasian woman who wanted to be head of the NAACP because she identified as black. And we think, how crazy is that? But this is seems very normal when you have this worldview. Self-expression is the freedom to live the life you've chosen for yourself. Christianity, completely different, to be human and to be fulfilled is to find freedom in Christ and understand your identity in him. To know you're an object of divine love, that you are invited into divine fellowship, and that you are sinful and broken, but you have been redeemed at countless cost and brought back to grace and healing through Jesus Christ. And one of the things about that secular understanding is the necessary corollary of what you see up there about freedom is extreme isolation and loneliness and despair, which we are seeing in spades in our culture. The Christian understanding is what leads to joy and fellowship and community. So why story matters so much? The reason it matters so much is there is an aggressive secular narrative. It is in children's TV shows, it's in children's movies, it's in children's books. It is all over everywhere, and it is frightening. And if you're not used to looking for this, you can swallow the whole thing and just think, oh, that sounds so nice. It's so tolerant. Um, But the problem is that a lot of it is just wrong, and when your children and grandchildren buy into it, it becomes dangerous. So, The different stories are either we are here by accident, meaningless products of a random process, we can only invent meaning and purpose and do our best to stay alive, even though there's no point in life, or we are precious creatures of a loving God who's created us for something special that we are asked to do. We have the privilege of being able to do good and experience purpose as we live by faith in Christ and his kingdom. Now, the problem with this is these views are totally incompatible. They are absolutely and totally opposite in every way. But the problem is in our culture, we are syncretists. We just say, oh, it's all true. And we have what psychologists call cognitive dissonance, which means saying I'm upstairs and downstairs at the same time. It's impossible. And the book that Mike Dowling has written is a great tool to help highlight this for children. When you look at that, you can talk about what is each animal's point of view? Can both of them be right? Why? Which animal would you rather be? So these fables teach that biblical truth and the wisdom of the world cannot both be true, with a capital T, and that there is such a thing as truth. Children desperately need to be taught to think critically at an early age and not just accept everything that they're told. Another story that I really commend to you, especially when your children are a little older, are the Chronicles of Narnia, because it presents a very strong choice just like this. Is Narnia really the realm of Queen Jadis, or is she the White Witch, a usurper, and that Narnia is really the realm of Aslan? They can't both be true, one or the other, is false and the great thing about this story is it makes children want to be in aslan's kingdom so just to wrap up there's a great review of mike's book by jim daly who you may know is the president of focus on the family and one of the things that he says about this that i think is so important to understand is that when you look at these fables, they display key traits that we want our children and grandchildren to know about. Humility, obedience, wisdom, and core gospel truths, reminding readers that God's love is a gift that is not earned, that we're created for God's glory, and Jesus is the source of all truth. And this contrast of the world's wisdom and the wisdom of scripture is so important. And then the Narnia stories, one of the great things about them uh, is that they make you want to inhabit the story that portrays vividly scriptural truth. I'm just gonna read this quotation from Alistair McGrath. He is one of the great theologians of the world. He has a PhD in molecular biophysics, a doctorate in theology, and a PhD in intellectual history, all from Oxford. So he says, the evocative stories of Narnia affirm that it is possible for the weak and foolish to have a noble calling in a dark world, that our deepest intuitions point us to the true meaning of things, that there is indeed something beautiful and wonderful at the heart of the universe, and this can be found, embraced, and adored. A good and beautiful creation is spoiled and ruined by a fall in which the creator's power is denied and usurped. The creator then enters into the creation to break the power of the usurper and restore things through a redemptive sacrifice. Yet even after the coming of the redeemer, the struggle against sin and evil continues and will not be ended until the final restoration and transformation of all things. That's Narnia, but it's just like the New Testament. We each have our own unique story, but our story needs to be brought into connection with a grand narrative, a big story, which gives our story new importance and significance. Why? Because we realize our story is framed by something greater, which gives us value and purpose. Lewis's remarkable achievement in Narnia is to allow his readers to inhabit this big story, to get inside it, and feel what it's like to be part of it. So, I commend these stories to you, Mike's book, The Narnia Stories, and talk about worldview. Ask these questions, use the Burrowing Down Guide. It will really help you equip your children. Thank you so much.
4: I want to pick up on the theme that Brian. articulated about the decline of what we knew growing up in terms of our teachers um, being Christians and we lived in a Christian world. <clears throat> Excuse me, there's a Christian researcher and pollster whose name is Tom Rayner, and Rainer reached, recently published some statistics that are frightening to me. His percentage, his statistics show that the percentages of, Ameri- of Americans who claim to be Christians and can articulate the basic gospel message who were born before 1946 is 65%. For those born from 1946 to 1964, 35% can articulate the basic Christian message. For those born between 1965 and 1976, 15% can articulate the Christian message. For those born between 1976 and 1994, 4%. That's a frightening statistic to all of us who are grandparents worried about our grandchildren. So the question became, how do we respond as grandparents? How do we learn the specific skills that help us share and demonstrate our faith to our grandchildren? That was a struggle we all faced as we gathered as a small group. There were two foundations upon which we built our study. The first was prayer. We began by assembling a list of the grandchildren represented by the twelve folks in our group and there were 50 grandchildren among us. We agreed to pray daily for each of those 50 grandchildren. I still get chills when I think about all those other grandparents praying for our eight grandchildren every day. I've told our grandchildren how special it is that our friends were praying for them. In fact, one uh, on Christmas Eve, Bruce McLeod and I were out front waiting on the service to start at 1030, talking with Jimmy Glenn. And I said, Bruce, how are your grandchildren doing? And Jimmy said, do you guys share grandchildren? And Bruce said, well, as a matter of fact, we do. He said, I pray for Bob's grandchildren every day and he prays for mine. Some of us focused upon particular grandchildren every day. Phillips said, we're gonna name our grandchildren every day, but we're gonna focus on one in particular a day to make sure we give extra prayer to that grandchild. The second foundation for us was scripture. We learned how to bless our grandchildren. Why did we do that? Well, if you start with Genesis and you look, the first action that God takes after the creation of man is recorded in Genesis, verse 27, chapter 1, as follows. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. What does the phrase, God blessed them, mean? It means that God conveyed his unmerited favor upon them. God's creations, male and female, had done nothing, yet began life by being blessed by God, by receiving his unmerited favor. Then in Genesis 12, we find God saying to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. So Abraham becomes God's representative in blessing other people on behalf of God. We find this continuing theme throughout the Old Testament of God's representatives blessing His people, culminating in that verse with which we're familiar in Numbers, in which the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So we as a group learn how to bless our grandchildren by putting our hands on their heads and looking directly into their faces and saying, Madeline, or Reeves, or Rebecca, or Atticus, or Charlie, or Peyton, or Noah, or Rosie, or Bain, or Cash, or Abigail, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace." Then we practiced that activity with each other so that we literally blessed each other during our study session so we'd be prepared to share that experience with our grandchildren. We remember the stories of Jesus blessing the children when he took them and said to his disciples, prohibit not those children from coming to me for such belongs the kingdom of God. As Anglicans, we have the weekly experience of the priest saying a blessing upon us, but how many of us have had the experience of one person looking into our eyes and reciting those words. It's a humbling, moving and emotional experience to be God's representative saying that to your grandchildren. We had another blessing produced in this diocese that we shared as well. And that blessing reads, I bless you in the name of Jesus. I bless you to know the Father's heart for you and the depth of the love he holds for you. I bless you with the joy of Jesus. I bless you with his faithfulness regardless of life's circumstances. I bless you with the peace and the power of the Holy Spirit that you may walk well in the paths the Lord has established for you. I bless the plans and purposes he has for your life. May you always see his hand in them. I bless you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that you may flourish in every good work he has prepared for you. I'd like to ask the people who are in this group who are here tonight to stand because if you've got questions about what we did and what went on, on, I'd love for you to have an opportunity to see them. So those of you who are in this group, if you would just stand where you are so they can see you and they'll know who to them, they can pose questions. So these are the folks who are in this first group and we appreciate all of that. I want to ask now Bruce McLeod to come forward with us because Bruce wants to share with us his experience of having blessed his grandchildren on a particular occasion.
6: Thank you, Bob. Um, Bob misspoke. We had a a list of 50 grandchildren but Bob and Noel added a 51st one on January 26th and that Isaac Nathaniel is on my list and I pray for that child as well. Uh, I came to Charleston two years ago this month. I drove all night from Washington DC Northern Virginia area where I lived for 30 years and uh, I thought I'd made a mistake. That was January 3rd, the day you got six inches of snow here. (laughs) But uh, I stayed. And one of the reasons I came to Charleston is because my son is here. He's a professor at the College of Charleston. He has three of my eight grandchildren in Mount Pleasant. In the 30 years I was in Washington, all my grandchildren were born and grew. And I realized that the three in Houston and the two in Atlanta had outgrown me. They had grown up so fast that I didn't spend a great deal of time with them. And uh, although we tried to go visit on special events and occasions and birthdays, and I actually routed my business travel through Houston and Atlanta in order to spend time with family. Uh, My family in Mount Pleasant was living in Columbia at that time when my son taught at USC, so I, I went to Columbia on occasion. But I reached a point where I said, you know, this wacky world that you've described to us tonight is really something. Uh, I need to spend time with my three grandchildren. I'm blessed in that I have what we call found grandchildren. My three grandsons in Houston are believers in the Baptist Church with their parents there. My two sons in Atlanta are not believers, or two grandsons rather, and my three grandchildren in Mount Pleasant are not. Now when we made up this list I was astonished at at, uh, the fact that we came up with 50 grandchildren from 12 people and uh, God is a generational God. he loves the generations of families and and throughout the Bible you see so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat I always skip over those parts because I don't (laughs) but that's God he loves the families and he loves the generations and we have an obligation to share knowledge of God and our faith with our families. Um, when we got this list, we, we prayed, and we continue to pray. The, the, the course is over, but I still have my list, and, and I continue to use that and pray for them by name. My son asked me in, in Mount Pleasant, he said, Dad, what's going on at St. At Philip's? And I said, well, I'm praying for your three children. He's not a believer. And I said, so are eleven other people and they're praying for your children by name on a regular basis and he was blown away by that he's now come to st Philip's four times to worship with me he said dad i haven't been in a church in twenty five years So best way to my grandchildren is through their father but i'm going to do my best uh... just to share one more thing with you the the blessing that bob mentioned was was a joy i think it was uh... Uh, the evening we, we shared that. Uh, is Cam here? There she is. Cam and I were partnered off. The idea was you partnered with someone that wasn't your spouse. And uh, I, I'll never forget when Cam looked at me with those blue eyes and put her hand on me and, sa- and said the Levitical blessing from number six. And I, in turn, blessed her. But that encouraged us. And over Thanksgiving, my family from Houston was here, the three believing so- grandsons. But we went to lunch uh, a, a day or so before Thanksgiving, and their father said the blessing for the food. And I said, well, Hold on a minute, I want to bless my grandchildren. So I tried it. I was a little shaky about it, but I, I did the Levitical blessing. And the looks of wonder and the wide eyes of these three teenage boys was just amazing to me. It was a Wonderful experience. I'm looking forward to finding the right opportunity to one-on-one bless my grandchildren here in Mount Pleasant. Um, if you're thinking about this Grandparent matters course, do come. It's it's very good, and it's a good book. And um, I think you'll you'll come up with excuses. You'll say, "Well, I I'm busy," or "My spouse can't come." We had three couples, but we had six individuals there. So come without the other grandparent. Or as uh, Ken and J. John said last night, come anyway. (laughs) So I want to encourage you to come.
4: I want to pick up on the theme that Brian articulated about the decline of what we knew growing up in terms of our teachers um, being Christians and we lived in a Christian world. <clears throat> Excuse me, there's a Christian researcher and pollster whose name is Tom Rayner. And Rayner recently published some statistics that are frightening to me. His, percentage, his statistics show that the percentages of, Mar- of Americans who claim to be Christians and can articulate the basic gospel message who were born before 1946 is 65%. For those born from 1946 to 1964, 35% can articulate the basic Christian message. For those born between 1965 and 1976, 15% can articulate the Christian message. For those born between 1976 and 1994, 4%. That's a frightening statistic to all of us who are grandparents worried about our grandchildren So the question became, how do we respond as grandparents? How do we learn the specific skills that help us share and demonstrate our faith to our grandchildren? That was a struggle we all faced as we gathered as a small group. There were two foundations upon which we built our study. The first was prayer. We began by assembling a list of the grandchildren represented by the 12 folks in our group, and there were 15 grandchildren among us. We agreed to pray daily for each of those 50 grandchildren. I still get chills when I think about all those other grandparents praying for our eight grandchildren every day. I've told our grandchildren how special it is that our friends were praying for them. In fact, one uh, on Christmas Eve, Bruce McLeod and I were out front waiting on the service to start at 10.30, talking with Jimmy Glenn, And I said, Bruce, how are your grandchildren doing? And Jimmy said, do you guys share grandchildren? And Bruce said, well, as a matter of fact, we do. He said, I pray for Bob's grandchildren every day, and he prays for mine. Some of us focused upon particular grandchildren every day. Phillips said, we're going to name our grandchildren every day, but we're going to focus on one in particular a day to make sure we give extra prayer to that grandchild. The second foundation for us was Scripture. We learned how to bless our grandchildren. And why did we do that? Well, if you start with Genesis and you look, the first action that God takes after the creation of man is recorded in Genesis verse 27, chapter one, as follows. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. What does the phrase God blessed them mean? It means that God conveyed his unmerited favor upon them. God's creations, male and female, had done nothing, yet began life by being blessed by God, by receiving His unmerited favor. Then in Genesis 12, we find God saying to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. So Abraham becomes God's representative in blessing other people on behalf of God. We find this continuing theme throughout the Old Testament of God's representatives blessing His people, culminating in that verse with which we're familiar in Numbers, in which the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So we as a group learn how to bless our grandchildren by putting our hands on their heads and looking directly into their faces and saying, Madeline or Reeves or Rebecca or Atticus or Charlie or Peyton or Noah or Rosie or Bain or Cash or Abigail, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Then we practiced that activity with each other, so that we literally blessed each other during our study session so we'd be prepared to share that experience with our grandchildren. We remember the stories of Jesus blessing the children when he took them and said to his disciples, prohibit not those children from coming to me, for such belongs the kingdom of God. As Anglicans, we have the weekly experience of the priest saying a blessing upon us, but how many of us have had the experience of one person looking into our eyes and reciting those words? It's a humbling, moving, and emotional experience to be God's representative saying that to your grandchildren. We have another blessing produced in this diocese that we shared as well. And that blessing reads, I bless you in the name of Jesus. I bless you to know the Father's heart for you and the depth of the love he holds for you. I bless you with the joy of Jesus. I bless you with his faithfulness regardless of life's circumstances. I bless you with the peace and the power of the Holy Spirit that you may walk well in the paths the Lord has established for you. I bless the plans and purposes he has for your life. May you always see his hand in them. I bless you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that you may flourish in every good work he has prepared for you. I'd like to ask the people who are in this group who are here tonight to stand because if you've got questions about what we did and what went on, on, I'd love for you to have an opportunity to see them. So those of you who are in this group, if you would just stand where you are so they can see you and they'll know who to them, they can pose questions. So these are the folks who are in this first group and we appreciate all of that. I want to ask now Bruce McCloud to come forward with us because Bruce wants to share with us his experience of having blessed his grandchildren on a particular occasion.
6: Thank you, Bob. Um, Bob misspoke. We had a a list of 50 grandchildren, but Bob and Noel added a 51st one (laughs) on January 26th. And that Isaac Nathaniel's on my list and I pray for that child as well. Uh, I came to Charleston two years ago this month. I drove all night from Washington DC, Northern Virginia area where I lived for 30 years and uh, I thought I'd made a mistake. That was January 3rd, the day you got six inches of snow here. (laughs) But uh, I stayed. And one of the reasons I came to Charleston is because my son is here. He's a professor at the College of Charleston. He has three of my eight grandchildren in Mount Pleasant. In the 30 years I was in Washington, all my grandchildren were born and grew. And I realized that the three in Houston and the two in Atlanta had outgrown me. They had grown up so fast that I didn't spend a great deal of time with them. And uh, although we tried to go visit on special events and occasions and birthdays, and I actually routed my business travel through Houston and Atlanta in order to spend time with family. Uh, My family in Mount Pleasant was living in Columbia at that time when my son taught at USC, so I, I went to Columbia on occasion. But I reached a point where I said, you know, this wacky world that you've described to us tonight is really something. Uh, I need to spend time with my three grandchildren. I'm blessed in that I have what we call found grandchildren. My three grandsons in Houston are believers in the Baptist church with their parents there. My two sons in Atlanta are not believers, or two grandsons rather, and my three grandchildren Mount Pleasant are not. Now. When we made up this list, I was astonished at at, uh, the fact that we came up with 50 grandchildren from 12 people. And uh, God is a generational God. He loves the generations of families. And and throughout the Bible, you see so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat. I always skip over those parts because I don't. (laughs) But that's God. He loves the families, and he loves the generations. And we have an obligation to share knowledge of God and our faith with our families. Um, when we got this list, we, we prayed and we continue to pray. The, the, the course is over, but I still have my list and, and I continue to use that and pray for them by name. My son asked me in, in Mount Pleasant, he said, Dad, what's going on at St. At Philip's? And I said, well, I'm praying for your three children. He's not a believer. And I said, so are 11 other people, and they're praying for your children by name on a regular basis, and he was blown away by that. He's now come to St. Philip's four times to worship with me. He said, Dad, I haven't been in a church in 25 years, so best way to my grandchildren is through their father, but I'm going to do my best. Uh, Just to share one more thing with you, the the blessing that Bob mentioned was was a joy. I think it was... uh, uh, the evening we, we shared that. Uh, is Cam here? There she is. Cam and I were partnered off. The idea was you partnered with someone that wasn't your spouse. And uh, I, I'll never forget when Cam looked at me with those blue eyes and put her hand on me and, sa- and said the Levitical blessing from number six. And I, in turn, blessed her. But that encouraged us. And over Thanksgiving, my family from Houston was here, the three believing grandsons, but we went to lunch uh, a a day or so before Thanksgiving, and their father said the blessing for the food, and I said, well, hold on a minute, I want to bless my grandchildren. So I tried it. I was a little shaky about it, but I, I did the Levitical blessing, and the looks of wonder and the wide eyes of these three teenage boys was just amazing to me. It was a wonderful experience. I'm looking forward to finding the right opportunity to one-on-one bless my grandchildren here in Mount Pleasant. Um, if you're thinking about this, Grandparent Matters course, do come. It's it's very good, and it's a good book, and um, I think you'll, you'll come up with excuses. You'll say, well, I, I'm busy, or my spouse can't come. We had Three couples, but we had six individuals there. So come without the other grandparent. Or as uh, Ken and J. John said last night, come anyway. (laughs) So I want to encourage you to come.
0: Thank you, Bruce. Thanks to everyone. Are we blessed to be a part of a church that teaches the truth, the one and only truth of Jesus Christ. Um, thank you so much to our speakers who taught us so much about Christian worldview and our our culture that we're we 're going against the tide with our culture, but we 're part of a church that teaches this um, I also want to I want to be, encourage you to to look at the books that that the Dowlings have to offer for us tonight, but I also want to tell you that we're going to offer this grandparenting matters again. As you can see, there's real power in the small group of grandparents coming together, praying together, praying for each other, and and really kind of art, iron sharpens iron kind of group. So I encourage you to think about that. On your tables are places where you can please sign that you came and places to, to sign up for another group if you're interested. We're also looking to offer... Uh, another small group, a four week DVD series called Never Too Late by Rob Rhino. Um, I understand he's coming to Charleston to speak in March, but I watched a clip of, of his teaching and it was really moving. I'm, I was blown away. I have three daughters, and one of whom has turned away from the Lord. Um, she was in church. A lot uh, she was in Sunday school in youth group in fact one of the younger women who's about her age now came up to me at church and said you know when she was a little girl she used to pray with me pray for me and yet she's walked away I, I see her coming back but um, she needs she needs the Lord obviously and I think this kind of teaching that this man Ryan, Rob Rhino does can help those of us who are um, concerned about our, our children who may not be walking with the Lord as we would want. So I hope you'll consider that other group for four weeks for a four week study. So the other thing I want to say is when we do offer these classes, we've been offering them at this time from 7 to 8 on Wednesday nights. We're also looking to offer um, a class in the afternoon. So if You can see on that sheet that you could sign up if you're interested in the afternoon or on perhaps a Thursday afternoon after Jeff's Bible study could be an option or the same time on on Wednesday night at night. But um, please sign the sheets before you leave and, and put down your interest in any of those. And I encourage you to... Please look at the Dowling's information. Their books over here that are really wonderful. And thank you so much for being here. God bless you. One more. Yeah. And I'm going to ask Brian to close us in prayer. And then also we'll have prayer teams, one on each side, in case you'd like some prayer before you leave tonight.
5: So, before the closing prayer, I forgot to mention that I did bring some handouts since I went through that so quickly, um, which are on the table. Uh, if those should run out, if you just shoot me an email, I'll be happy to send you uh, a copy of the handouts through the email. There also is a very fine article about worldview um, by Dr. Moeller, whom some of you may have heard uh, when he spoke at Mira Anglicanism a couple of years ago. So, I commend that to you. So, with that, uh, let us close in prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you are our creator, that you are the source of all that is good and true and beautiful. Lord, we thank you for the families in which you have set us. Lord, we confess to you that we have not always thought carefully about what our worldview is and how to communicate uh, things that would help equip our children and grandchildren, but we pray that you would help us to be able to do that. Lord, we pray that you would guide and bless each grandparent in this room. And Lord, we pray by extension for all of their children and grandchildren, that you would open their hearts to the truth of your gospel, that you would protect them from the assaults of the evil one, and that you would strengthen them in knowing you. Lord, we pray that you would guide us as we go from this place and that you would guard our hearts for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.